at one stage, Ernst and Young had valued the business, you know, in the millions of dollars. And I thought, boy, we hadn't we hadn't taken any funding. And I thought, man, I've made it. You know, I've, I've yeah. worth millions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, six months later, it's zero. This week, we're excited to welcome Joel Lessing onto the 2020 show. Joel is the CEO and founder of Firmex, an industry leader in the virtual data room software category. Tens of thousands of organizations use Firmex's VDR SaaS software. And under Joel's leadership, Firmex is rapidly becoming a standard for sharing large volumes of highly confidential documents. So thank you so much for being on the show with us today. You're um, welcome, Angelique. Yeah, so let's, let's dive right in. So um, to start off, can you give me a quick summary of what Firmex does in layman's terms? Sure. So Firmex is a facility to share confidential documents uh, over the internet, primarily for the purpose of due diligence, which is a process in mergers and acquisitions and large financial transactions. How did you develop the concept behind Firmex? The, the concept is not new. Before they were virtual data rooms, they were physical data rooms. Yeah. So the process of uh, performing diligence when you're buying a company for $100 million is not new, but people used to actually do it by looking at paper in a secure room. And probably uh, right around 2000, 2001, uh, people started getting the idea that we should put these, um, these paper rooms on the internet. What yeah. Firmex did in 2006 is said, hey, um, rather than charging per room, we should launch a service that's a subscription-based service. Because a lot of there are a lot of organizations in the world that do these these uh, deal processes on a regular basis. So really what we did is we took a, a different business model to an existing um, process and technology or we developed a new technology for it. And that's really how Firmex got started. You founded Firmex and before that you also founded Crescent Logic. So I'd like to hear about how um, the process of being involved in multiple startups at different pieces in your career helped you grow as a leader. Can you think of maybe, you know, an added anecdote of a, of a moment where you realized something that drastically changed your perspective um, over the years? Well, I think there's a, there's a bunch of things. One is just growing up, you know, you know, when I first started working as a salesperson after I graduated from university, you know, I was happy to have a job, happy to make some money, happy to, you know, um, just happy to have a good time. <laughs> and then... I think I was about 28. I thought, thought, what do I really want to do with my life? And uh, I thought, I really, I was working for entrepreneurs, and so versus a large corporation, I was working for you know 20-person companies, and so I really got to see every detail of how a business runs. Yeah. And you know, I would have, you know, I'm very close with, you know, I have beers with the entrepreneur, I, and I thought, you know, I want to start my own business, and that became a goal. Yeah before I'm 35, I thought, you know, and so, you know, and it's, it's, it's tougher to start your own business when you're making good money doing something else sometimes. <laughs> but, um, so I did that, uh, with, um, Crescent logic. And I would say at the time, you know, I kind of knew how to sell, but I was still pretty naive, even though at the time I think I was like 32, yep. you know, and, um, you know, I, I learned from that experience, um, you know, th that one actually happened, that one got caught in the dot-com collapse. Oh. So there's another <laughs> recession. And, um, you know, but I learned the importance of making sure you have a good plan. Making real critical thing is making sure you have a, if you have a partner in a business or a co-founder, making sure you really have good chemistry with that person. Yeah. If so is that a problem that you had um, at 
at Crescent Logic where there wasn't great chemistry? That was a problem. And that was a problem. And that will destroy your business. That will destroy your startup. It's just, it's, it's, it's just not going to work. And so that was a relatively short, that was 15 months uh, okay. in that business. And so a combination of, you know, I think, I think relationships are easy when times are good. Relationships get, get tested when times are not good. And in that mm -hmm. case, you know, early on, I was selling a lot of software right off the gate and then the market collapsed and that things got strained. And it was clear that this partnership was not going to survive, um, challenging environments. And so I, um, and so that was really, that was a tough one because at one stage, Ernst and Young had valued the business, you know, in the millions of dollars. And I thought, boy, we hadn't, we hadn't taken any funding. And I thought, man, I've made it, you know, I've, I've yeah. worked millions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, six months later, it's zero. Yeah. So that was a, that was a pretty tough, and I worked really hard. I worked 18 hours a day. I worked eight hours a day on weekends, seven yeah. days a week. And the other lesson I learned from that was you can't be married to the financial success of your business right? because if it crashes, you're going to crash. Okay. So going into Firmex, um, did you look for a co-founder or, or how did that influence the way that you built Firmex at the beginning? Well, that's really interesting. Firmex happened because I actually just took a new job working at a larger company, a large software company. And, and for me, being used to working in small companies, uh, it just wasn't a good fit. Yeah. And so the fact that the, my co-founders at Firmex have been pursuing me for some time with actually a services business, like a custom programming business. Mm -hmm. And I really wasn't interested in um, services. I really like selling products. And mm -hmm. so, um, but because I really didn't like my job at all, this new job that I'd taken, um, I, I called them up and said, look, I'm going to try and help you in your company. There were only 10 people working there. Yeah. And so I came over. And they had, they had approached me a number. Every services company would like to be a product company. Right. And they'd had a, they built um, a system for a law firm, a knowledge management system some years ago when they first approached me because I knew I was a good salesman and said, hey, we'd like to take this to market. And I looked at the market. By then, I was smarter than I was when I did my first startup. And I said, I looked at the market. I looked at the number of potential buyers. I looked at the sales cycles. I looked at the competition. I looked and I said, you know what? This isn't a good business. This won't be a good business. Mm -hmm. And so um, I went off and worked at that other company, didn't like it, came back to them. And then they said, well, we have this simpler application we built for the same client called the deal room. What do you think of that? <laughs> and when I looked at the market and I looked at the competition, all the light bulbs went off. I went, wow, this is a big market, much bigger market, much bigger market. Um, yeah. The competition's charging per data room. They're charging a lot of money. They're selling by field sales. I think there's a market opportunity here. And the market is growing fast. Like the adoption from paper to web is, is rapid. This is back 2005, right? Yeah. And I said, this, this sort of checks the timings, right? There's a, there's a differentiator we can, we could potentially take advantage of, and we have a minimal viable product. Let's go. Is why, why did those founders want to get you involved? Was it, did they well, need help with sales or? Yeah, that's right. So okay. I, I was the, I was the original founding director of sales. I see. Okay. And how did, how did you go from there to um, becoming CEO? Was that a gradual thing or did that happen pretty fast? Well, it happened pretty fast. I mean, I really wrote the business plan and then it was decided the company would need capital. Yeah. And I was probably, you know, the, the person going out, first of all, my strength really was, is in numbers. I'm sort of, I do mental math and I'm, even though I don't have a formal education, I'm pretty strong in finance and, and, um, and sales. Yeah. And when you're going out raising money being and very analytical, yeah. and all of those um, skills, it was, I was the right guy to go raise the money and in order 
if I was the one going out raising the money, it, it made sense that I should, you know, be the CEO because, you know, obviously that's when people invest in a business, they're investing in the person as much as they are in the business. Right. So um, early days, did, before you came on board, it sounded like you, like the company had a software in place already. So um, what was, okay. So, I mean, I think, I think the, the, the inception story of the Firmex sounds really interesting because like, it just sounds like the team stumbled upon this market opportunity. And then when you did, when you did the, you did, you did, when you did your homework, you found out, okay, there is something pretty That's big right. here. And then you just followed it. That's right. And one thing I've, I've recognized in retrospect, Anjali, yeah. is that usually if you want to be, if you want the highest, you got to keep a couple of my, all of us were around 40, the founders, we all had mortgages and children. Mm. Failure was not an option. Right. Right. Like it's, I sold my house. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So th there wasn't like, Hey, this isn't just kind of like play CEO and have fun, you know, that I'm, you know, I, I don't have to worry about the financial consequences of this. And I was given up good income. Yeah. You know, we were going in, you know, my family going into our line of credit. I mean, failure was not an option. So, you know, your approach to, um, to, 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 um, you know, taking this very seriously, doing a lot of analytics and being, um, you know, having a high degree of success was critical. And right. so, one of the things uh, I've recognized is that in software, there's usually, you know, software categories have long cycles. It could be 30, 40 years long. But that first five or 10 years, probably first five to eight years, if you can get in early, obviously you're going to pretend and, and, and it's growing fast. That's a, the timing is critical. Right. Some software categories take a long time to get going. Like they could take, they could start, and it won't be for 10 years that the market really starts adopting it. You don't want to get in, in that case, you want to see something that's moving really quickly, but it's still early. If you can get in early while it's moving quickly, that's critical. And you want there, that there's some commercial proof already in the marketplace that the market is adopting this because if it's not adopting it and you, you come up with something originally, you have to educate a market, it's very expensive. Right. People aren't coming to you for the product. You have to go to them. And that's where you end up raising lots of, you know, venture capital. And the challenge with venture capital is eight to nine times out of 10, you're not going to make any money. Mm. Right. As a founder, because most of those companies never get above the value above the company that's uh, the money that's invested in. So, um, in fact, the numbers are, 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 if you do the research, I can send you my decks on it because I talk about this. Um, only 29% of institutionally funded companies are sold for an amount greater than zero. <laughs> okay. Right. So I knew all this, like I was, I was no spring chicken anymore. I was, you know, was been through the ringer. And yeah. so I knew that if for us to make money and feed our families and, you know, have a commercially successful business, we'd have to take, um, we, we had to pick our spot. So, I mean, going into it, it sounds like there was a lot of risk that you were considering and it must've been, you know, it must, so why did you, what gave you the confidence to jump in and, and go for it? Well, like I was saying earlier, Anjali, when I was 28, I, I said, I got to start a company. Like my life goal is to build a successful business. Yep. Right. And, you know, I asked this a lot when I interview people, I said, well, let me take a step back. When you ask older people who are, let's say in their eighties of any advice in life, and they always say, well, I only regret the things I never tried. Right. And so I knew this was something that was, um, that was just, I really wanted 
this to work and especially after the first one didn't and so I, I when I saw the opportunity or I figured out the opportunity I thought okay this is my shot right like yeah and and uh and so we were just willing to do it and the two other co-founders were serial entrepreneurs so they were mm. used to taking risks so I saw Firmex was actually founded in 2006 so that means you would have been um building this throughout the last recession so how what did that process look like I think that might be interesting for students who are going into you know possibly the next couple of years which are probably also going to be a bit rough you know we it's funny the business over du doubled in size during the financial crisis so okay we, we weren't really impacted by that I, there, there was a pretty i have to say when lehman failed and, and the markets collapsed in late 2008 we were uh, burning cash at that time because we'd just taken in some investment and certainly people were concerned and uh, but we we just continued to see um, new orders coming in and so we just sort of stuck to our business plan and it worked out just fine okay so it i would say yeah. Angela, also help you're really small it's actually a good time to start in a recession because yeah. it makes you more um you're more focused on the operations rather than you know you don't really want to be raising capital and you know it's it, it really makes you quite efficient you know when you're in tougher times so i actually think it's a good time to start um, a business. Has your company needed to make a move towards online working a lot more now than before or was that already something that was happening? Well fortunately we all our um, internal applications were hosted so when when we um, closed the office I was actually on vacation in Florida right and so I never even returned to the office I could just continue working I just went home and continued working on the computer at home I never had to even go in the office and get anything right. uh, so uh, which is which is you know tremendous, and so we've 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 been in a hosted environment for a while, and we've really realized, like many software companies, that we're just as productive working without an office, and so um, so that's an interesting realization, especially when you've got a lot of people that are spending considerable amounts of time commuting to an office. So we're looking at different working models uh, going forward. So, what are your thoughts on how maybe you may take? some some like um, lessons from this experience or maybe modify your approach to, to working over 60 about 60 percent of our employees spend between one and three hours a day commuting and so for us the real advantage to productivity was that you know we're saving a lot of our employee time which you know whether they put it towards work or just for personal you know just enjoying their lives more um, I think would be a great benefit to the the health of our employees so we've decided that we're gonna have a hybrid model Okay. You know, we have some employees who live close to the office. They live in small condos. They'd rather be at the office. And we have other employees that live far from the office, typically, you know, ones that are, you know, maybe having families and they've moved out to the suburbs uh, or surrounding towns. And, you know, it's um, challenging. It's a lot of time getting in and out of the office. So those employees would probably come at a different frequency. They come in the office, you know, once or twice a week or twice a month or something. We just actually put out a survey to our staff and survey just for office planning. Cause we have to understand like, well, how many, you know, dedicated desks do we need versus sort of hoteling desks and dedicated right. offices. So just, and so we needed to get a commitment. Employees have to commit to, okay, I'm coming in once a week or I'm coming in every day. And so for the daily employees, we'll have a dedicated workspace. And for the, uh, you know, periodic people coming to the office, we'll have a hoteling space for them, but it's a bit of, Logistically, it'll be interesting because, you know, how do you, you know, does each department have some dedicated desks and some shared desks, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, so th that's the, 
we're still working that out. Unfortunately, um, we have some time to do so. Um, yeah, for sure. And that, that'll have impact on the amount of square footage we need in the office as well. But I don't think it'll, I don't know how much of an impact it's, I have, I'm going to wait till I get the survey results. Yeah, and have you, so one, I think one concern that some other companies are um, dealing with is how to make sure that, like, is there a productivity loss in this change? So what are your thoughts on that? I, I'm not, I'm not sure if there's productivity loss. I mean, we, we pretty, certainly not, um, uh, I, I'd be surprised if there's a net productivity loss at all. You know, we monitor everything, even on the sales side. I mean, we record phone calls. We kind of see activity. You know, I think that some things that are missing is over time, you're going to, your culture is going to, um, is going to change. I think the thing that the staff miss the most is seeing each other in person more on a social basis versus a work basis. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're going to get some of that back when, when things return, when the virus is gone and people are in the office and we get together for events. And, and so we're really missing a lot of the, the sort of social aspect more than anything. I, I do believe new employees who are being trained, uh, we haven't, we've just, next month we have some new employees for the first time. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how we can ramp them up remotely versus, um, you know, in person. Have you felt like this pandemic has impacted Firmex in any other ways other than how you work? Has it impacted strategy in the short term and the long term? Certainly. Um, you know, part of our business is impacted by this. We have a transactional business, which is about 30% of our business. Um, the transactional business, M&A transactions are down significantly mm -hmm. uh, during the COVID period, uh, over at least 50%, right. if not more, we're still getting the data. Um, so the transactional business has been adversely impacted. Uh, fortunately, our subscription business has held up tremendously and uh, is still growing, uh, which is a real testament to the strategy that we put together 14 years ago. Um, and it's proven to be very resilient um, in, the, in the COVID environment with a massive downturn in the number of deals getting done. Right. So, so, so certainly that's had an impact, but we haven't had to... Uh, reduce any wages or lay off any staff whatsoever because the business was operating with 35% profit margins. You know, the business remains profitable, although just less profitable um, during the COVID period. And so, uh, and we fully expect the deal market is gonna snap back in the second half of the year. Uh, the economy may not snap back, but you know, people, the deal market will, will probably start picking up. Um, keep in mind deals, um, you know, volatility. Like we also get data rooms for bankruptcies and other types of deals that restructurings uh, and that type of thing. So, you know, we, we do think that, you know, things will improve. Well, that's the consensus anyway in our, in our community over the, over the course of the year. So, you know, overall, we're actually pretty thrilled with um, how this, how our businesses um, handled this, um, um, uh, you know, basically black swan event, yeah. uh, which has been so devastating to so many businesses. Um, yeah, and in fact, the, the, the bank, Demo, which, is, um, which helped with the acquisition financing when we went to our last one, said we were in the top 1% of their clients as far mm -hmm. as, uh, so we feel pretty good about that. So when you say um, subscription clients, so um, just to clarify, so do you have, outside of um, clients who use this for M&A, um, do you have clients that just use it on a recurring basis to uh, share documents? Yeah, so okay. we, we have customers that they, they do lots of M&A and corporate finance um, transactions. So, you know, if they have a subscription and they're only doing three instead of six, they're still gonna keep their subscription. 
okay. because the value of those deals are in the, you know, often in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And the subscriptions okay. are fairly low cost, right? So we also have ancillary use cases around compliance. So we have clients that use it for investor, these are private companies or private equity funds. They use it for investor reporting. We have um, many corporate clients that use it for, um, you know, sharing confidential documents with partners and manufacturing. In fact, we even have, um, you know, you know, for example, the banks in Canada report to uh, oversight um, Crown Corp, and they use Firmex right, to report to, um, you know, the CIDC. So yeah. we get a lot of that's what I put on the bucket of compliance. But you know, so we get compliance-related activity mainly around audits and investor reporting. We get deal-related activity, and we do even get some litigation. But I would say the primary driver, probably 80%, are deal-related activity, and that will range from, as I mentioned, M&A to fundraising, to restructuring. So, uh, you know, across the gamut, anytime there's a new investor, uh, they will want to do due diligence. Right. Okay. Um, and you're talking about how um, Firmex has been pretty resilient, both through the, the last financial crisis and, um, and COVID. So how did you, is that kind of just luck or was there some strategy involved in trying to construct this so that it would be resilient? So the strategy was to build, most of our, our competitors are all transactional. Yeah. So they charge on a per data room basis. And those, that business model is much more volatile and would, would be down significantly in this environment. When Firmex went to market, we really needed a differentiator and to offer a subscription, which is you can do as many deals as you want for, for an annual fee, was a way to not only gain customers, but also have a, a, a certainty of um, of revenue and cash flows for the business. Right. So we actually forego for a much higher revenue for lower revenue, but very consistent revenue. And um, that, that was fundamental. I was a strategic, and we thought this would add value for customers. And it also adds value creating extremely stable business. I mean, Firmex has never had a layoff in its history, mm -hmm. um, is consistently profitable. And really the goal from a business point of view was to deliver a high degree of certainty as far as financial return. Okay. so. It seems like so it's it's really the that subscription model that has helped allow um, Firmex to see consistency over the years. Like consist, consistency. That's over. right, and it's okay. really saved our um, saved our business at, during this um, event. And I think the silver lining on this, Anjali, is that you know I think we're going to be because of the results of the the. I mean, we're looking at a hundred percent net retention, dollar retention this month. Um, the results of that are going to speak really well to investors. Our investors are thrilled. I think I'm sure our future investors will be thrilled. You know, it's all good. Um, and to close off, do you have any advice for young entrepreneurs or just new entrepreneurs just starting out during, um, during these unprecedented and probably uh, rough economic times? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, I mean, obviously in this environment, you, you, you probably, you know, it's the only kind of business you can start would be a COVID resistant business, yep. which by the way, will probably get a premium valuation down the road because I don't think the world will forget about this anytime soon. Yeah. Um, and so look, uh, you know, what I always, one thing entrepreneurs never really think about sometimes is what I find is that they usually think about is I'd like some money <laughs> from an investor. And what they should really be thinking about is, um, you know, do I have, a, am, I, am I well matched with my co-founder? Um, do I have, um, is there commercial proof that my business makes sense? And um, 
at the end of the day, what do myself and my potential, if I have a co-founder or founders, really, what is the dollar value that I want to, I want to make as a, as a person and build your capital plan around that value. I found a lot of entrepreneurs, they just get excited and they just kind of run in and they just raise whatever and they're not really thinking about it. And I actually go and talk about this. I have, if you want, Angelie, I can share with you the presentation decks that I do for this kind of topic. Yeah, for sure, definitely. Um, and remember, this is a merit for most, for most businesses, not the ones you may hear about the, the odd, you know, um, news release and beta kit. Most businesses, it's a 15 to 20 year journey. Yeah. If not longer. And so it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And as a result, make sure you take care of yourself, your family, your friends, um, and you know, pace yourself accordingly. Yeah. And I guess um, if you are preparing for a marathon, um, there'll be multiple recessions and rough times that uh, your business will need to be resilient to. So I guess starting in rough times probably isn't the worst thing in the world. There's, there's nothing. Yeah. As long as if you can get started now, then you can Yeah. <laughs> you can, just fine. All right. Thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome, Angelique. Thanks for having me. Hey again, it's your host, Anjali. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the 2020 show. We have some amazing guests lined up for you from leaders at tech giants, to founders, policymakers, and more. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.